Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash thedirectorscut. And if you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of Betty Gordon's new cat and mouse thriller, The Drowning. The film follows child psychologist Tom Seymour, who spots a young man trying to commit suicide by jumping off a pier. After Tom jumps in and saves him, he later realizes the man is Danny Miller, who was convicted 12 years ago of murdering an old woman, largely due to Tom's psychological testimony at the trial. When Danny starts showing up on Tom's doorstep and befriending his oblivious wife, Tom revisits the case and realizes that their present situation is no mere coincidence. In addition to the drowning, Ms. Gordon's credits include the feature films Handsome Harry, Luminous Motion, Variety, and Empty Suitcases, the segment Greed, Pay to Play from the anthology feature Seven Women, Seven Sins, the movie for television Life on the Line, and episodes of the series Love Street and Monsters. After a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Ms. Gordon spoke with fellow director Maggie Greenwald about filming The Drowning. During their conversation, Ms. Gordon discusses the difficulties of adapting a novel for the big screen, her interest in probing the dark side of characters in her films, and why she decided to go with a riskier ending for The Drowning. Okay, it's on. Can you hear? Yeah. Um, the first thing I want to say is I saw the film. Uh, Betty sent me a link before the film was in theaters, and I saw it on my laptop. And when I was asked to moderate this, I came, I knew, I, I figured I'd see it here to just refresh my memory, but wow, am I glad I saw it on the big screen. Uh, I assume we're all filmmakers of one kind or another here, and it was a really profound reminder of uh, why we still want our movies to be on the big screen. The uh, really the power of the um, thriller vocabulary in the way you shot the film and directed it is so, uh, so, I mean, it was strong on my laptop, but not like this. I mean, this was really riveting and the tension was, uh, was really amazing and uh, beautifully shot. Um, so I, uh, you know, I've been taking notes and making notes, but I'd like to start with uh, first thing is um, how you came to this material. Did you develop, find the book, and then develop it with the writers, or did Frank and Stephen Moulton, had they been working on this, and then you connected with them? Um, okay, so... Pat Barker is a pretty amazing writer. Some of you might know her books. She's really well known for Regeneration Trilogy, which is a series of books about World War I and actually PTSD uh, war vets. 
I didn't know her work that well, but I'd heard of her. Um, at the time I read her book, which had been given to me by a very good friend, after a really traumatic thing happened in my life, uh, my, my oldest and dearest friend was murdered by her 19-year-old son. And I watched this kid grow up. He was a good kid who loved his mother. And then that. And I was desperate, you know, I mean, traumatized, but desperate for an explanation. And um, I read this book by Pat Barker. Not that it has explanations, nor does the film. In a way, it's about the unknowability, the enigma and the unknowability of at the heart of any crime. But she asked philosophical questions that I was asking in my head, like, um, you know, can evil be explained, let alone treated? I mean, this thing that psychiatrists and psychologists, you know, sometimes set out to do, and, and are you, uh, if you commit an evil act, does that make you evil? Just sort of bigger questions. And I always love to tackle those kinds of questions about human nature and morality is a theme that runs through my other work as well. Um, and I decided that I would have to option this book immediately and uh, find a way to make it. But I, I, you know, I'm an independent filmmaker for the most part, so it's not like I have this huge kind of backup of, well, I'm gonna call my agent or anything like that. So I call up the literary, I somehow track down um, the, um, publisher who puts me in touch with the literary agent um, in London, Aitken Alexander, and luckily um, the rights had just been lapsed by Focus Features had them, and they didn't want them anymore, and I said, I'll take them, and then negotiated, you know, a very small amount of money to uh, get the, the rights, and then started the whole long process. And anybody who's ever done, um, and Maggie has too, an adaptation from a book knows how hard it is because you fall in love with a book for the very reasons that it's literature, it's a book. And you, can, you have so many ways of going into the head of a character, and you know backstory, and you have these meanderings of being, the writer can tell you things, but we know that in movies, we have to take psychology and turn it into behavior. So that was hard. After many drafts, Stephen Moulton was a friend of mine, and he had been also a novelist, as well as a screenwriter, and also had worked in development. So I thought, what an interesting you know, way of maybe working with somebody who's had these different um, hats. And we began this um, development process, writing the script and rewriting. And I think it's very hard um, that f the first few steps of the way when you're still so close to the book. But he did a great job. And what was so hard, and I don't think Stephen, by the time we got through a few drafts, he was exhausted, he needed a break, and it's already been like a year, maybe a year and a half, and he says, all right, I need a break. Um, and we still had this problem. The problem is, how to take a character like Tom, who is so in his head and so internal, how do you take the internal and get, make him a man of action? You know, how do you put into action his journey? And that, um, he, he's not a man of action in the book. So when I began to really put my finger on the problem, I'd also known Frank Puglesi, another friend and colleague, and, had, and he had been a playwright. And I was very attracted to his writing because it, it was 
um, very succinct, unlike Steve, who had been a novelist and who would write, you know, maybe too much, Frank was good at kind of finding the essence. And Julia Stiles, when she came on board, used to say that she really loved Frank's writing because he never finished a sentence. And I think that's true, that it was really interesting that that element of Frank in combination with what Steve had already done. Plus, Frank had read the book, but by the time he came on board, he was so far away from the book, and Steve could never get away from the book. So I think, you know, it took us all, the three of us, in different iterations to bring this to a screenplay. And finally, I think at the very, very end, we did a reading, um, and Tom McCarthy came on board to read for us and a bunch of other really great people. Frank and I were sitting there, even then, you know, three years into it, you know, right before we luckily got the money to make it, we would see ways in which Tom hadn't been activated enough. And at the very end, Frank came up with um, the brilliant scene, which is not in the book, of, of having Danny force Tom to hold a chicken while he killed the chicken. And that was a complete invention of Frank. And it was about how do you take, how do you make somebody who's a, a kind of an observer of life into a participant of life? And it just like unlocked so many doors for us. It was really a great, it's a great scene. It still yeah, freaks me really, out. It's really brilliant. Yeah. It is an incredible scene. Um, the other thing I, I, I wanted to talk about, of course, is the um, the film is really uh, directorially rigorous and very muscular. The theme that resonates through all of your films is that I recognize in this and your other work is the unknowability of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, from variety all the way through. Um, Harry. Handsome Harry, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I forgot the name uh, of it. Luminous Motion. Luminous yeah. Motion, also yeah, and this yeah. very yeah. much. Mm. Um, the It's a two-part question, you know, as two women directors who have struggled with uh, being women in the film industry and getting our work made, um, period, regardless of who the stories are about, most, uh, as far as I can recall, you're the only independent woman director I know who has made now two films with male protagonists. Yes, yeah. And um, uh, the thing that, uh, so the two-part question, because I think everybody sitting here knows that if this was a bigger bu budget movie, Betty would never have been hired to direct the film, right? Because no. she's a woman. However, the directing is so rigorous, and really, you would never know nor care that it was directed by a woman. Um, so uh, I thank you for that, for standing up for all of us. Yeah. But also, I want to ask you, because as an independent filmmaker, I'm so... Um, my journey is so much about telling women's stories, right. and so I'm very interested in why you were drawn not just to one, but to two stories right. uh, uh, with male protagonists. Um, and actually, Handsome question. Harry, her previous film, yes. was only men in it. I don't even think yeah. there was a female <laughs> there character. Two, no, there were two females, but they were. Very peripheral, yeah. 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 yes. Yeah. So 
Um, right. You yeah. know, just uh, and it's if you don't mind talking about that. Yeah, because I started with a film called Variety. I mean, Maggie and I knew each other around that time, and it was the 80s for me, and I made a film about a woman who sells tickets in a pornographic movie theater and becomes obsessed with the sort of the her sexuality, desire, questions of whether pornography could be something that she could use for her own um, pleasure, and it asked a lot of questions, again, like all my films do, um, about that, and I think I was a bit ahead of my time. It was a, it was a difficult film, and I remember its reception being somewhat, you know, shaky, yes, although we but, were... but it's legendary. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's become this very kind of famous cult. early... Yeah. Independent American. Yeah, and, and we were invited to Cannes and, you know, sort of all over the place. And slowly over the years, the film has gained so much traction and it's, you know, it somehow fit right into the 1980s in New York City and it's a document of New York. And anyway, but it was, and up until that point, and, and with, vari with Variety, I, I, and I'm not, not interested in women's journeys um, and female characters, but um, I've, I really put everything I had into variety. And then after that, I made a film called Luminous Motion, um, starring Deborah Unger, um, an actress who I fell in love with from having seen her in David Fincher's The Game and David Cronenberg's Crash. And somehow she had been like their muse, and I was interested in well, but what about me? You know, like, can I have a female muse? In, 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 and so uh, it was a story about a mother and a son who lived a kind of amoral life on the road in, her, in their car. And she uh, and her son were like, you know, Bonnie and Clyde. She'd steal money from the men she picked up, and that was how they lived. But she loved her son, and she wanted to do right by him. So, again, it kind of crossed these boundaries. Yeah, yeah. she... She was a great mother. <laughs> yeah, and and yet you yeah. know, so she did, you know, and and I felt like fathers always got away with a whole lot, you know. Let I had just seen Paul Schrader's movie Afflicted, and we love Nick Nolte, and he's abusive. I said, well, why can't a woman step off the path and still be loved like that, you know? So again, I feel like I'm always you know, putting myself into a territory. I think it's because I'm punk rock, you know, or at least Subversive, I was. eternally subversive. Yeah, I am, I am. And I'm always looking to sort of make trouble and kind of subvert or come from within. So hence comes um, Handsome Harry and this film. I, I think I wanted to um, see men through my eyes. I felt like men can direct films about women and films about men and films about anybody. And I didn't, I think I've always not wanted, I've always hated to be ghettoized into a category or, you know, uh, even to have the label woman director, even though I, of course, embrace it. But the fact is, you don't have um, our male directors saying, hi, I'm a male director. You know, well, we end up, you know, sometimes using that label. So I just w really wanted to, and beyond all of that, I really wanted to understand. Um, something about men that I thought that I could see through my eyes differently than men um, could see themselves. And um, what did somebody say with Handsome Harry? Sometimes it takes, you know, a great woman to really see, you know, the vulnerability um, of some of the male characters that I've um, explored. In Handsome Harry, it was about a Navy, a bunch of guys who had been in the Navy at the end of the Vietnam War, and they had a secret. And, you know, something really questionable happened, and it was based on um, 
the question of sexuality and, um, as it turned out, a love affair between two men that had been squashed, Campbell Scott and Jamie Sheridan. And it, it was really a beautiful story written by a friend of ours that Maggie knows too. And I was just so um, taken by this... These, these guys that I grew up with in the movies, like Lee Marvin and William Holden and you know these classic men, and I wanted to find something beneath the surface of those guys, and I think I did. Oh, you did. Yeah, and here too, uh, again, you know this, this Jekyll and Hyde um, kind of archetypical, m more male than female, I guess, and I just wanted to really examine the, the struggle of the rational versus the libidinal and social versus animal and somebody like Pinter whose work I really love has explored that you know Sam Shepard I said why not me you know like and I I guess um you know had they been two women in the story in the book I would have also chosen it um they happen to be uh, these two male characters, and I don't know, there's something about father-son, because that's not my experience, mother-daughter, mother, or, or daughter-father, but male, male to male seemed so interesting to me the, that it's so fraught in a way that I, I don't know, but I wanted to explore the deeper kind of ramifications of that. So um, I, th I think that that's why. I mean, there may be other reasons, too, but um, just on the sort of first level of my answer, mm -hmm. I, th I think there's something about my female eyes and my experience looking, mm -hmm. um, sort of trying to get on the inside. Well, I think for me, the thing that came through more than anything is uh, a, you know, really not caring the gender of the director, just looking at the story is, uh, you know, the dynamic between someone shut down, cold, unemotional, completely cerebral, and the seductiveness of someone who's so full of feeling uh, that he can't really live in the world. Yeah. He becomes yeah. an animal. Yeah, exactly uh, right. That's a good way to put yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And so the yeah. the uh, struggle between those two is really mm -hmm. um, what came across more than any uh, any... Anything to do really with anything gender? To, nothing. There's nothing about the film that relates to gender. I'm just bringing that up. No, no, but there is a little bit. There's um, Julia Stiles when she came on board, and I was so. It was the first time in my life where I had an actor read a script and, like, three days later, call me up and say, "I'll do it without even <laughs> meeting me." That was like, why? And she loved the script. I think she was drawn to the the. Um, you know, the, the psychology in the story, but she said, I want to take a character who in the genre would normally be um, in danger and in such a way that, you know, she would be disempowered because we'd be worrying at her. And I want to give her a, her own secret, which in a way she had, and, and I think Julia really helped me to push that. And her secret is ambition. And she She's moving, she's going, she's moving ahead. And she wants Tom to understand that she wants him, but she doesn't need him. And the genre itself, if you think about Cape Fear, which of course this is most like, you know, that the victimization of the female characters. And so I liked the idea that we could pull that out of the genre and really explore it with her. Well, but you also exploit that anxiety that we, yeah, have, that we have by him stealing the photograph. Because yep. even yep. though I saw the movie, <laughs> it's like three or four months ago, I was worried about, uh, I had forgotten right. the, that the ending takes place without her in it. Yeah. And uh, 
uh, I'd remembered much of the rest of it except that, and I was worrying about her the whole time. Yes, no, <laughs> so because it we're plays on all of our fears. Yes, uh, um, yes. anyway, in yeah. a really yeah. powerful way, and I, <laughs> I loved that y the ending is absolutely not with her. That you yeah. thwart the ec the expectations of the of yes. the genre. Yeah, yeah, and make it completely between the cold and cerebral, uh, and logical, and yeah. the feeling Battle. and. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah. really, that in the end, Tom is no match for Danny. Uh, and there's a little Tom and Danny, and there's a little Danny and Tom as well. But but ultimately, mm -hmm. this invasion has to stop, and um, Tom does take action. Yeah. And uh, he, he um, albeit, you know, an action that's going to put him in a place similar to Danny, perhaps. Uh, but uh, it's... it's um, it seemed like the only thing I could do. However, I did shoot um, and have another ending as well. Ooh. Yeah. Didn't totally come to this one right away either. Oh, that's interesting. Right. Right. Um, I know. It's, I, I wanted to have both endings on the DVD, but I don't know if um, we're going to be able to. And the book doesn't end like this either. How does the book end? So in the book, still the same conversation in front of the school at the end after Tom does the reading and mm -hmm. they walk down the steps and Danny starts to, you know, turn the knife in again and, and play with Tom, manipulate Tom um, about um, knowing information that maybe he got from Julia, from, from Lauren, or maybe he didn't, and kind of play with the idea of writing a book, et cetera. And that's all the same. Even the dialogue in the car is the same, but it all happens in front of the, the school, and they never get into a car. Tom never says, I have to get to the airport. Can I give you a lift? lift. It just It's the dialogue. In the end, um, Danny walks away saying, hey, I'll send you a copy of that book. I think you'd really like it. He walks away. Rowena's waiting for him, and he turns around and smiles, the most beautiful smile, this gorgeous Danny smile, mm -hmm. and just you see this disempowered kind of struck again in the gut, Tom, unable to, uh, you know, mm -hmm. pull back, you know, anything um, from this, this uh manipulative yet you know he's evil he's completely powerless yeah so he never takes control. he never takes action as much as i love the ambiguity of that and pat barker ends it a little less um ambiguous i mean she has that kind of beautiful danny smile and then she goes on one more uh beat to have tom try to get to this island where the mom lives you here you see the mom living on the water in the book it was written for newcastle and the, his mother lives on this kind of island that you have to you know either take a little boat to or you can walk when the tide is down and he's walking to see his mother on the island and on the way back he does the wrong timing and he forgets that the tide is coming in and he almost doesn't make it so it's a drowning yeah. possibility ending too but uh you know we we couldn't quite do that and well, um uh, yeah uh, so before i open it up to questions i there were um two more things now that you're talking about putting the alternate ending on the DVD, does that mean you'd be willing to tell us what it is? Th that was it. That, that oh, that oh, was that it. That we just leave him right okay, by... Okay, so you, sh yeah. you filmed this it. ending yeah. and the ending in the book. Yes, I shot okay. both. Okay. And, but the book ending had a little more than what I shot, but both of uh, but Pat Barker and therefore I wanted to leave... At first, what I wanted to do was leave the 
opening for the idea that this is an unsolvable problem and that the Dannys of the world are wandering around and there is no finite conclusion. But, but our investors were the first ones to say, you know, we've taken this journey with this, these two guys. I mean, the audience How needed about some, some payoff. Yeah, yeah needed yeah. something. <laughs> and while I resisted it, Frank again came up with the ending of the car and the the uh, ending of the invasion, and I I started to like it and I started to kind of root for it, even though I shot both endings. And when people would come to the editing room, I would play one and then the other, driving myself and them mm -hmm. crazy. And finally, in the end, because of my journey to activate Tom. I chose that ending. Mm -hmm. You know, never 100% sure. I, I like it. I like, I've in my life, I've always gone for more of a dot, dot, dot. And I decided mm -hmm. for me to take the risk would be to have, you know, a payoff ending. I said, mm -hmm. hey, let me see if I can do that. So well, I um, love it. To me, it's definitely the more cinematic ending as yeah. opposed to the other one, which feels very literary. It's a conversation, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, is uh, as we work with adaptation is the struggle. I, as a yeah. someone who's written and directed work that I've adapted, I feel like the adaptation is never done until the final cut because yeah. it's really so impossible to it. Yeah. move from the book. Yeah. Um, and then the other uh, question I have is, I mean, the casting of Josh Charles and Julia, but. Um, I love, I, and I don't, I should know how to pronounce his name because oh, my teenage me. daughters. Oh, they love him, right? Well, yeah. I love him too. Yeah. Uh, Avon. Avon Jogia. Avon. Avon like Jogia. Evan. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know uh, if any of you have younger kids, but he's like a big Disney Channel star and uh, was in. Um, Twisted was a TV series. Yes, and he was in the yeah. one with um, Victor Victoria Justice. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, um, I was, uh, I think he's really, uh, he's the heart of the film. He, he is, is yeah. really dazzling, mm -hmm. and his beauty really, um, his performance matches his beauty and making him completely believable as someone who's so seductive and yeah. and can really manipulate all these adults into believing whatever he wants. So yeah. how did you come to him? So uh, whew, it was hard. Uh, Josh, I um, met early on. I mean, I think even t uh, Frank and I, when we were doing our last few drafts, imagined Josh Charles. He had been on The Good Wife, and I swooned over him there. Um, and so I love his his internal, um, his he's tough on the one hand and um, vulnerable on the other, and I I, I think he's a an, an actor who is able to do a lot with very little, and I'm always attracted to that. And with um, the Danny character, who that was hard because there's a lot of young you know 20 year old boys, some on the other side of it, just seem too too much a boy. So how do you find the 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 boy who also has a masculinity that would be a threat to Tom. Mm. And while, you know, you could look at somebody like Miles Teller, I mean, there were a lot of people that were out of our reach because they were, maybe they had made their mark in an indie film, but then immediately were playing, um, you know, Batman or, you know. Or the, because the, they're English. Yeah, yeah, and they go on to, you know, like this, the big uh, blockbuster. And so it wasn't that easy 
to cast, although people kept pushing Rory Culkin to me, and I liked him, I'm but... I'm so glad you didn't no, cast. No, no. And finding... So my casting director, Alison Estrin, who had worked with Paul Schnee and um, Carrie Barden for a long time, she went out on her own, and when she left them, I went with her, and she's now casting Billions, but she has such an amazing eye. She promoted Avin to me, and she said, you have to meet him. I did. I mean, we talked. He's super smart. He's a political activist. He really is out there on the front lines. And he just got the character. He he was very interested in asking me questions as I asked him just about when is when is Danny genuine? Does he even know when he's sincere and when he isn't? That's and we question. we we you know discussed a lot of what does what does Danny want you know from Tom? Does he want a retraction? Does he want forgiveness? Does he want to punish him? Does he want to make him feel something? And we we settled on a lot of things, but beat by beat and moment by moment. We really kind of looked at with both actors. I looked at you know the scenes and really got underneath. And Avin is is really smart and somebody who was really willing to do that with me. And um, it was great. Well, I'm sure it. this film is going to launch him into a whole other level so, yeah. of work. He deserves um, it because yeah. he is just. I mean, the, in the Disney Channel shows, he's just the pretty boy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, actually, um, and uh, he played a very small part in Shari. Um, Berman, um, um, CBGB's film, Bob Pulcini and Shari Berman, who worked together, um, they did that American Splendor together. But anyway, they made a movie about CBGB's, and he had a tiny part in it. And so I, they 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 let me see a cut of that, and that that also did it for me because now he was older and he was playing this edgy character. Um, and I and I said, okay, okay, he's it. All right. So uh, questions, please. Yeah. Did everyone hear the question, or should I repeat it? Yeah, repeat it. Repeat it. Okay. The question is in the so in the scene where he uh, gaffers tapes the, mm -hmm. or duct tapes the chicken to uh, Tom's hand and then kills it. He says that he wasn't enjoying it, but is that true or was he manipulating Tom? Um, I I mean the whole scene of course is a manipulation, but we don't know that then. So the question is, how do you? I mean, you're, so on the level of the moment, he's being sincere, but on the level of the design that the character Danny has to um, get Tom to buy into his story and need for redemption um, is is what he's playing. If you're asking me, does Danny like it? I would say no. I'd say I don't think he did either. I think what Danny wants to do is make Tom reveal himself to himself, which is to say that as a culture, I think that we are um, all fascinated and horrified by the dark side of human nature. We all have a dark side. We may not act on our dark sides at all all times. Look, we make movies about it. We read books about it, whether whether it be reality TV movies or, um, you know, in cold blood. I mean, I think that we have this need as a culture to imagine evil characters. I mean, now we have a document, a, a fiction film about Madoff. I mean, are we ever going to not be fascinated by this tendency to this dark side? And so um, I think in looking at, in probing the dark side of human nature, which is what I'm doing, I am, I am thinking that 
we have to look at our own psychologies. I mean, w there's always a point at which any of us could go from one side of that border to the other side of the border. It's The name of the book is called Border Crossing, and so I think what Danny really wants to do is show Tom that um, it's possible simply to slip across that line, and we ourselves should really, at least I wanted us to think about what borders, what psychological borders we might have crossed or may be capable of crossing. It scares us, I think, but also makes us ask questions about, um, I think, difficult questions about human nature and what is it, and look at the world today. And, I, I you know, the person we, I think we slipped yeah. across, actually. Yeah, we, in, in politics, maybe, yeah. yeah. It's like a time cut, right? And later, you know? Right, but cut. I think the question is about the character, the uh -huh. transition yes, in the yeah. characters came out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're it's saying. It's very jarring character transition. Yeah, and people do ask me about that. Um, I, I think when you're, when you're tracking the journey of a character who's going off the deep end, you watch choices that that character makes. You know, bad choice number one was letting Danny in his house, which is the no-no for, you know, a psychological patient, psychologist patient, psychiatrist patient relationship is that there should be no contact. So, yeah, he should have said no there, but guess what? He didn't. So he was already, you know, he's, he's troubled. When we meet Tom as happy and good as the relationship is with his wife, also, he's not living a full life. Remember, Tom is on a mission once Danny appears, and that mission is to seek the truth. But we find out that Tom has a past and an agenda that's compromised, that he had a past in which, as a kid, and you know that kids can be crueler sometimes than even adults because they haven't yet entered the land of the superego. And so a kid, as a kid, Tom also um, pushed a kid in the water and almost watched him drown had not Tom's father come. And you, you learn that later, but you don't know that right at the moment where you see Tom again step off. He's a man who's going also like a detective who is in search of either verifying or denying Danny's story, he's lost a little bit of his own moral compass, even at the beginning. Of course, he lets, and that question is, why does he let Danny in, is one that Josh, Charles, and I really worked on, because your humanity tells you, this kid needs my help, am I going to say no? And he does, he tries. He says, look, I can give you the name of someone else, and, and Danny says, no, I want you. You're the only one that can help me. And I mean, psychiatrists are only human too. So, you know, that line, the pro that Tom is, he's professional, but he also is struggling with his own demons and the demons, and doubt. Let's not forget doubt. Um, I had a lawyer, uh, sorry, a judge come up to me after a screening and say how troubled he has been in many situations where the jury was... Um, I think you can waive your right to a jury sometimes, and in certain situations, he's had to make that final decision. He said it's really hard to sleep the next night, you know, when you make that choice yourself. And Tom feels responsible for Danny, maybe. You know, we, we think that in the beginning he, he is trying to stave that off, but eventually he takes responsibility for possibly his testimony having sent the kid away. But back to your question about Rowena, and so 
why does he let himself be so easily seduced? But maybe it's just that moment, that moment where you can make a bad decision. It's a line cross. Just like I said, you know, at what point in your life or my life or any of our lives have we made bad decisions? I've made plenty of them, let me tell you. And not because I'm a bad person or not because, you know, I don't have, you know, a higher mission, but, but I think it's possible, right? Maybe it's not you know, I don't know if it's, I think it's within his character. I think it is within the character of a man who's riddled with some doubt and some question as to why he was so able to testify against a 10-year-old boy um, at the time he sent him away with testimony that was damaging. So I don't think it's out of character as much as you're suggesting. The light change, you know, was meant more to make time pass, you know, in the sense that, well, they don't just get in the car and have sex right away, that, you know, there's possibly some let's go to another place and, um, you know, talk some more. So so there's time that, that um, happens in between there. But the funny thing is, um, is that a lot of people say to me, that didn't really happen, did it? Didn't he imagine that? And <laughs> no, but okay, you know, it, it can be that too. Well, it can be interpreted both yeah, ways. Sometimes you think you, sometimes you've done something and then you say, wait, did I really do that? Or I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this is a good answer to your question. Well, Maybe not. I have a question. Was this the way it was in the script where yeah. she whispers in his ear and then we cut straight to yes, it's it evening and they're having sex in the yeah. car? Or yeah. we assume it's them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, actually, even some of the crew said, are you sure you want him to have sex with her? I mean, I've, I might not be, you know, the most um, um, authority on whether people cheat or not cheat in relationships, but I, I, I think people step off across a line when, especially when they find themselves in stressful situations and, you know, you don't know which way the wind is going to blow from one moment to the next. And it doesn't mean ever that you love the person you're with any less. I, I, but then again, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, so I come from a different place, you know, than maybe other people do in terms of that question. Um, it, it made sense to me that he would do something also because I didn't want to start him at point A, a pro, a professional, um, who is, you know, has a good life and a good practice and end him doing with doing what he did without seeing the various steps at which or stages of him I found unraveling. It, I found it startling also, but I, you know, I also thought we really need that middle step of yeah, seeing middle him step. devolve. Yeah. So that we know something's broken inside of him, and, even and though true, his yeah. face is completely implacable. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's to hide, yeah. you know, what's really going on. Yeah. And other questions? Yeah. Yes, yes. We want him to do something. I think we're saying, come on. For, when I read the book, I first said, will you please wake up? You you made a mistake, I said to Tom's character. Will you just please face up to the fact that you made a mistake and tell the kid that you made the mistake? You know, like I'm really rooting for, for Tom. To, and I'm reading the book, and I'm reading the book. And then all of a sudden, at some point, I begin to realize, oh, he didn't make a mistake. And then I'm rooting for Danny like, okay, well, maybe he did this thing, but well, did he mean it or didn't he mean it? You know, so it was really interesting as a reader who I was rooting for when. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, and so I, I tried to recapture That's that. That's the phrase, film. psychological thriller. Yeah, yeah. yes. I yeah. mean, it truly is. that The New York Times review said, <laughs> which was very positive, the yes. reviewer said exactly that, that psychological thriller is often... Uh, um, a description of a film that's bandied about and rarely is there the psychological part, but in this film, the psychological part is very strong and powerful, which I, I absolutely agree with, which is why we're asking all these questions, yeah, because no, they're, 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 they're ones very essential asked, psychological yeah. questions. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Um, yes, I, w I was very uh, clear um, for myself on what I wanted to do. Um, I am a filmmaker first, and I've always used um, film, except not with Handsome Harry. This is the second film I've shot on digital. And so one of my um, dislikes of digital, no matter how beautiful an Alexa camera is, is um, the sharpness of the image and this deadness of the image. So I... Um, some of my friends have been shooting still in 16, like Todd Haynes will shoot in 16 and then go to digital. But I said, okay, I'm gonna use the digital because that's what it, you know we, we decided on. But I knew that I would use a, as long of a lens as I could. So I, I really, with the DP, Radium, who had just shot with wide angle lenses for Tangerine, the, the movie that was made on the eye, uh, on the- um, On an iPhone. iPhone, right. And, um, I was interested in in sort of getting him to look the opposite way. And so a lot of it was the use of long lenses, the compression of space. And then um, we developed this kind of cinematic language where we'd use barriers, something in front of the image that you couldn't quite see but you'd feel. Sometimes he even would use little crystals like just to kind of put another layer between us and what was happening. So it almost makes you feel a little bit voyeuristic and off balance. And that um, really helped, I think, you know, that sense of being off balance or that sense of even looking through um, somebody else's eyes and feeling that dread. Um, I, I, I also love the idea of dirty shots. I said I want almost every shot to be dirty whenever it can be dirty, meaning that there would always be character A in character B's frame. And I was just pushing that, you know, really hard and fast. And as many shots of backs of necks as I could, because I'm fascinated by the back of uh, the neck, especially men, because, you know, don't have longer hair, so you can see this, there's something about the vulnerability of that. You can feel the so, tension. Yeah, and you feel the tension in the shoulders, so, but really it was very, very, very conscious. Fassbinder taught me a lot about barriers. I don't know if anybody ever saw Berlin Alexander plots. I mean, all of Fassbinder's work, but I, I think I used to wait in line for hours to see a Fassbinder movie, and my sadness is that the younger generation of filmmakers doesn't seem to know who Fassbinder is, doesn't seem to know who anybody is, except, um, Maybe they go back to Rushmore is kind of where for them, you know, movies begin. So, um, but I really lulled many, 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 many years. My visual style in a way, I mean, I have to say it's, it just, it comes from the way Fassbender could really make you feel things, you know, about characters visually. And my great pleasure as a filmmaker is in using the cinematic language, the visual language that um, we have. And um, I grew up early on, I think from when I went to study in Paris till now, just, you know, I could watch three and four films a day and never be tired. And and it was really the the 
composition. Um, it's the mise-en-scene for me that really carries the meaning. I mean, dialogue is important, and I love working with actors, but if I can find the right frame, I feel I believe what Hitchcock has said, I still believe to this day, which is if a, if a film is made using the cinematic language, even if it's if the characters speak in a language that the audience doesn't understand, we should still understand and know what's happening. And so that, that sense of dread and that visual play of... Um, lines and shapes and, and um, shadows and all of that for me is really important, as is color. Um, not so much from Hitchcock, but, you know, as I said, from somebody like Bertolucci or Fassbender, that, that sense of the palette of the filmmaker and what it has to say um, about the story. I, I was here months ago um, in an amazing Q&A, and I was sitting in the audience, and so I'm really so moved that I'm actually getting to sit up here, but it was Jonathan Demi, my dear, dear, dear friend who recently passed away, and I worked for him a long time ago, and Pedro Almodovar, and Pedro Almodovar often says, for me, um, making films is about the color red. He says it, and I said, Pedro, do you still think that? He said, yeah, I do. And so it's, it's color, you know, it's mise-en-scene, it's everything, but um, it is the image that carries so much more meaning than just what are the words on the page. The words on the page are so important, but they're the blueprint. And everything else that comes from that is that is that um, what you have in your head and how you can um, bring it alive using the language that we have to use, which is a visual language. Uh, the question is the opening scene of um, of Danny jumping into the river was um, was that a manipulation? Had he been known that they would be walking there and using it as a test? Yes, I think it is a manipulation. And the, in the scene in the hospital, um, he says, uh, coincidence is the crack um, in human affairs that lets God in. I wanted that to be the title, but I guess it was too long. Um, I love it. Coincidence is the crack in human affairs. That's true, right? Um, but anyway, yeah, so, so I think even at that point, Danny is telling him that it's no coincidence. And then later on with Teddy, the John McGinley scene, I love that John McGinley. He's so fun to work with. And every, every time we do the scene, you know, he'd, he'd change the words all the time. You know, I could never get him to say the exact same thing twice, but it was so much fun. And he says, do you think it was a coincidence that he showed up in your life? And so, you know, the fact that we're asking that question means that it's not a coincidence. Uh, anyone else? Any other questions, comments, anything? Okay, I'm hearing applause. Thank so. you, everybody. Thank you for coming. Great to see you here. Yeah, and tell people that you know it's still playing at the IFC downtown, and then it'll be out on, you know, VOD and Netflix later. But I love people in the theater. It's really just such a treat. I can't believe I'm sitting here. This is amazing. I'm finally in the DGA. Yay! This is Betty's first DGA Yay. film, Yay. by the way. So, uh, so it's an uh, honor. Thank uh, you, everybody. Yes. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. You can check out past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. 
We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.